lot of ground to cover and not very much time, so uh, let me jump right into it. Uh, I want to kind of frame the talk today around, uh, if you will, a purpose statement. And uh, the purpose statement is simply this. We, and when I say we, I'm talking about we as individuals. I'm talking about we as a local church here at Morasa 994. And I'm talking about we, capital letter C Church, the church that we were just talking about all around the world, that we are called... And we are equipped for liberation ministry. How many of you know that? We are called and equipped for liberation ministry. Now, liberation is simply defined as the act of setting someone or someplace free. Like if there's an occupied country, you can come in and you can kick out what's, where the occupying forces are and you liberate that country, right? So we are called and we are equipped for liberation ministry. And let me show you this biblically before we get into the, the passage that we're going to walk through today. Uh, so Jesus is just beginning his public ministry. He's actually in Nazareth, and, and uh, he's, uh, he takes the scrolls of Isaiah, and he opens them in the presence of all the religious leaders, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty there's a word, to the captives and recover sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus then says to the people, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing, which got him in a little bit of trouble. Um, they weren't really happy to hear that, but that's the launch of his public ministry. Near the end of his public ministry, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says, peace be with you, because as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. So if you put those two passages together, kind of almost like a parenthesis, parenthetical statements to, to the ministry of Jesus, he says, this is what I was called to do, and as the Father sent me, this is what you're called to do, to proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty, to recover sight, to, to liberate the oppressed, to proclaim favor. What I love about that is it's all inclusive, right? There's, there's a picture of physical healing, there's a picture of spiritual healing, there's a picture of justice, there's all of that included in that mission statement. And as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. We are called and we are equipped for liberation ministry. I think the word equipped there needs to be unpacked just a little bit too. So just before Jesus ascends, he says to his disciples, but you will receive power. That's the equipping. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the, the earth. The only way that we can be a witness, the only way that we can have a ministry of liberation, a liberation ministry is through the power of the Spirit at work within us. This is not something we can do. As a matter of fact, when we try to do it on our own, we're going to fail. This is a God-infused, God-equipped ministry. So, biblical framework is there. We are called and equipped to liberation ministry. That applies to each of us as followers of Christ. It applies to us as a church. And the question that I want to unpack for a few minutes this morning is, why are we not as effective as we should be at liberation ministry? What is it that keeps us from being as effective as we need to do? What's the barrier? What's the impediment? What's the roadblock? And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to just share, well, I know there's many answers to that question. I'm going to share two barricades. Huh? <laughs> two barricades to liberation ministry. 
And the first one is simply this. When we fail to see and be motivated by the heart of the Father. We really don't understand the heart of God the way that we should. So grab your Bibles, turn to Luke. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. We're actually going to look at pretty much the whole chapter, but I'm going to kind of skip a few verses. But I just encourage you, once you find Luke 15, just to keep it open in your lap. And uh, while you're looking for that, let me give you just a little bit of context. Jesus is nearing the, uh, the end of his ministry. His crucifixion is drawing near. As a matter of fact, he's made his last journey from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And in this particular chapter, Jesus is under fire, if you will, because he's hanging out with the wrong group of people. The religious leaders are upset with him because of the company that he keeps. And I've shown this chart before. Matter of fact, I think I've shown it two or three times, but I want him to put it on, a, on the screen there. There was a, if you, if you will, there was in the ancient world a order or structure that needed to be. Thank you. And so in that structure, this was really, everyone kind of knew where they fit into that structure and, and they were expected to stay in their lanes, for lack of a better word. So the people that were most, uh, had the most authority were the governing class. The next most influential people and the people with the most power were the religious leaders. And you had the merchants, which would have been where the, the money was happening, right? The, the peasants, the unclean and degraded, and then the expendables. The slaves, people like that. So you, there, this was a known class structure. And what you need to know when you look at something like that is this is a, a system of control. It's a system of, of power, right? And, and it, it, we have our own systems now. Every country, whether you're in India or somewhere else, there's still a process. If you spend a little time looking at the sociology of the country, you're going to be able to figure out what the structure is. But what you need to know, anytime there's a structure like this, it exists for the express purpose of holding power over other people. And so Jesus is messing with everybody because what he's saying is, forget the structure here. As a matter of fact, when you have a party, don't worry about, don't stay in your lane. Invite the people that have no way to receive reciprocate what you're doing. In other words, hang out with people who aren't part of your group. He was messing with the whole thing. And as he does that, what he's doing is he's stripping away the power that existed within the religious leaders. That's really the reason they crucified him, because they knew their power was slipping away as he broke down the existing social structure that was there in order to hold power and manipulation over people, okay? So that's part of the reason they're so indignant about Jesus' behavior. So with all that in mind, let's look at Luke 15. Luke 15 starts with these words. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, were saying this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So let's stop there for a minute. When I read this passage, whenever I read uh, the passages where Jesus is under fire for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, I always think to myself, what would be the modern day equivalent of that statement? You see, when we say tax collectors and sinners, those are just broad pejorative terms to describe a group of people as a way of putting people into a structure, putting people into a class so that, so that they could be looked down upon, right? And so I just wonder if Jesus were here today, if this passage were written in, in modern day, would, he, would it say something like, Jesus was hanging around with a bunch of gay people? Right? Or would it say Jesus was hanging around with a bunch of thugs? Or would it say Jesus was hanging around with a bunch of Democrats? Jesus was hanging around with a bunch of Trump voters? Right? I don't know. Whatever your position is when you think, well, those people, that's when you get in trouble. Whatever those people are, and you can come up with whatever, and you probably already have in your mind thought, oh, well, whenever you have a those people in your mind, you're already in trouble. You're already slipping into the view of the religious leaders. Why would you hang out with those types of people? 
So the caution for us is to be careful not to ever see a group of people as more sinful than us, not to see a group of people as worse than us, and, and, and even worse, to pull away or not to be with a group of people because of our perceptions about them. Right, So the religious leaders, they're criticizing Jesus. They're, they're upset with him for the company that he keeps. And so Jesus responds to them in a very typical way. Right, Jesus tells a lot of stories. And in this case, he actually tells three stories. And we're going to look at all three of them and see if we can pull it out. But we, but we get, get a much better sense of what Jesus is communicating in these stories when we focus our attention. These are three stories about something that's lost. And so often when these stories are taught, we talk about what's lost more than the heart of the person who lost something. And that's really what the stories are about. This is really a story about three individuals that lose something of value. But we want to focus our attention on the ones who lost something and not so much on what exactly was lost. Okay, so look at verse 3. It says, so he told them a parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep... If he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in an open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he found, finds it, he, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me for I've found my sheep that was lost. And you can obviously see that the man is both distraught and has a very high level of fondness for his sheep, right? He's still got 99, but one is lost, so he leaves the 99 in the open country, and he goes, he searches, he does whatever he has to do to find the one. But the picture that Jesus is painting is when he finds it, he's so happy that he picks it up, he lays it on his shoulders. It's a picture of, of affection. It's a picture of, I'm so happy that I found you. So there's an embrace of this sheep, and he carries it back, but that's not enough. He's so overwhelmed that he invites all of his friends, right? And he says, let's have a party, right? Let's party because my sheep was lost. And now that I found it, verse seven, Jesus says, so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than when 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the question that that brings up is, did you know? Did you know that when you said yes to Jesus, there was a party in heaven? That's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? Look at the second story. It's a woman, she loses a coin. It says, or what woman having a silver coin, if she loses one coin, uh, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I'd lost. I love this story. And uh, when we were in Israel not too long ago and I studied there for a while, uh, one of the moments we had is we went into a, a home that was uh, a home that they had excavated and they kind of rebuilt it to look exactly like a, a first century, you know, a home. And I'm not sure that they expected this to be the, the takeaway. But for me, as I was sitting in this sort of dark room, it was the middle of the day, but because it's, you know, you don't have any electricity, there's no, no nat, you know, no unnatural light, I guess you could say. All you had was the, the light coming through the windows. Actually, the windows were quite small because, you know, you don't want to let the elements outside in. I was thinking to myself, this would be a really hard place to find a coin. Now, I don't know what we were supposed to be learning, but that's what I was learning. I was thinking to myself, dirt floor, thatched roof, no natural light, no flashlights, right? Just think about how much work it would be to find a coin that's lost in that home. But she does. She goes and she searches and she searches with none of the convenience that we would have. And when she finds the coin, right, she's, she's so excited about it. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, she has a party, right? She calls her friends and she parties. And then Jesus says, so I tell you the truth, there's, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, 
Again, I would ask you, did you know that the angels rejoiced when you said yes to Jesus? I think the angels are poised and waiting for the next party, for the next rejoicing. Then we get to the third story. And this is a story that's been taught so many times, and I just encourage you to stick with me for a minute, but it's a story about a father who loses a son. Said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens in that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. Don't miss the irony there of a young Jewish boy feeding pigs, not a good place. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I guess the modern day equivalent of this would be, hey dad, give me half your 401k. I don't care if you're alive or not, give me the 401k. The dad says, all right, son, I'll give it to you. And then he says, great, I got your money, I'm gonna book, I'm leaving, I'm going to a foreign country, and you're not gonna hear anything from me again. Just think about how hurtful that would be. As a dad, maybe you have a son, just think about that those words, how hurtful, those behaviors, how hurtful it would be. And and Jesus is by choice painting a pretty grim picture of the son's behavior. And there's no doubt that the religious leaders would have been sitting there thinking this, this is one deplorable son. This is a terrible son. Actually, what they would have been thinking is this son's no better than the people that Jesus hangs out with. He's definitely a sinner. Right, that's by choice. That's that's what, exactly what Jesus wants him to see and wants him to think. So he's painting a picture of a of a son whose behavior is pretty reckless and uncaring, right? But the younger son, at some point, he comes to his senses in some ways, and he says he's going to go back and he's going to ask dad if he could at least just be a servant because at least there he could have a warm place to sleep and, and something to eat. And it says in verse 20 that he rose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And this is huge. There's a couple of things that we can see there. The father was looking for the son, Right? And the father felt compassion for his defiled, unclean sinner of a son. And he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. Right? And I guarantee you that the religious leaders would have been listening to this story and they would have been uh, very upset with the way Jesus tells it. And what they would have been saying is, this boy doesn't deserve an embrace. He deserves a thrashing. Right? He doesn't deserve a kiss. He deserves to be punished. That's the story of all of our lives. You know that, right? That we were met with grace. When we deserve to be punished, we were met with an embrace and a kiss. It's a pretty powerful part of the gospel. And Jesus is, is making it clear, and they would have been uh, so upset with him in the way he tells the story, but he wants to make it even more upsetting to him. He wants them to realize, oh, wait, it gets better, or in your eyes, it gets worse. So in verse 22, The father says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand. Bring shoes and put it on his feet. This is, remember, the son who needs to be beaten is getting all of this. And bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat. Let us celebrate. Third party in three stories. For the son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Throws a party. One of the things that struck me as I put this talk together is we don't party enough around here. Right? I actually put in my notes this morning. Uh, I think when we have baptism services, we need to have a, par- we need to have a party after church. 
right? We need to party. I mean, if the angels are partying, if all of heaven stops to have a party, when somebody uh, re repents, we ought to party along with them, right? I think we have permission. We'll see what happens anyway. That's my, that's my thought. That's my takeaway. The people, everybody who works here is panicking right now that Doug's going <laughs> to, yeah. Anyway, so as Jesus drives the point home, he wants to make sure they get it. So then he talks about the older brother and how the older brother is upset. And if you notice in verse 30, the older brother says uh, to the father, when the son of yours came home, you devoured, and who devoured your property uh, with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. What gives? You know what he's saying? Why are you hanging out with the wrong people? Right? I mean, it's very clear that's the message. Why are you hanging out with the wrong people? He doesn't deserve this. He deserves punishment not grace. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So we erect this enormous barricade in having liberation ministry when we fail to see the heart of the Father. The question that we need to ask ourselves, are we attracting the kind of folks that Jesus attracted? Right? Are we, are we drawing people towards us and towards the kingdom of God, the kind of people that Jesus drew? And it's no accident that Jesus tells three stories in a row. And if we take all three of those stories in context, what we see is that there's a search in the first story, right? Man loses one sheep out of 99 or out of 100. He has 99 left, but he's willing to leave the 99. And he searches diligently until he finds that the woman has 10 coins. She loses one and searches diligently. Now the reader would have had to ask themselves, why is no one searching for the son? What's more valuable, a sheep a coin, or a son. Tim Keller has a pretty profound observation in his book, The Prodigal God. He says that, that when we looked at this passage, we would have asked ourselves, why is no one searching for the lost son? They would, they would have known, the, the listeners, that the scriptures say we are our brother's keeper. This is what a true elder brother would have done. He would have said to his father, my younger brother has been a fool, and now he's left and he's in ruins, but I will go and I will look for him and I will bring him home to you, dad. And if the inheritance is gone, and I suspect it probably is, I'll bring him back at my own expenses. That's the power of knowing the heart of the father, that the son would go and he would find the younger son and he would bring him back. There's no search, and that's what Jesus wants to see. Where's the search for the older son? And the other part of this is, that's exactly what Jesus did for us, right? He left the comforts, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. That's God, Emmanuel. That's the Christmas story. He came. Why did he come? Because he was on a search for what was lost. He was on a search for you. He was on a search for me. There was a search going to find those who needed repentance. That's what Jesus did for us. And to think of the cost of that. Think of the, the length that Jesus went to. And what I want you to see is that when we do not grasp the heart of the Father, when we do not see the length that Jesus would go to, we erect a barricade that keeps us from getting from here to there, from reaching the people that God has called us to reach. We need to have the heart of the Father. The second thing that becomes a barricade is our understanding of the gospel is way too small. It's way too small. And this is just American Christianity. And I'm sorry if I'm going to step on your toes a little bit here, but it just needs to be said. For most of us, Christianity is just a transaction. I said yes to Jesus. I get to go to heaven. 
I stamped my ticket and I get to go. Or maybe you've even taken the gospel a little bit further and it's, I've accepted Jesus, now I get to have some peace in my life through the hardships. And you know what? Both of those things are absolutely true and they're things that we need to celebrate. But you know, the gospel is a lot bigger than that. It's not just about you and what you get out of it. We just got done studying Colossians. In Colossians 1, it says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus, he reconciled to himself. Look at that. Reconciled to himself all things, whether things in earth, things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The cross, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus was to, res- to, to reconcile all things to himself. And we could ask the question, what does reconciliation have to do with liberation? And the truth of the matter is it has everything to do with it. The word reconciliation in the Old Testament is the word kafar, that's, and, and it most often is translated atonement. So when you see atonement in the Old Testament, know that it's, it's, it's the word kafar, and what it really means is a, uh, a situation that exists or a, a relationship that exists without tension. Get that? A, a relationship that exists without tension between us. Jesus came to remove the tension to be atonement for us so that there was no tension between us and God. Jesus came to remove the tension, right? So there was, in some senses, and a little different way of looking at it, a barricade between us and Jesus, and Jesus came to destroy the barricade. Actually, Jesus came to destroy, we just saw this in Colossians 2, the dividing wall of hostility. That's what Jesus did. He reconciled us to one another. But there's another part of this that you need to see. When there is tension between two people, and I'm not saying we disagree on something. This is a greater level of tension. When there's tension, something begins to happen. We actually become slaves of something. So if Roia and I have a falling out, if, they, if we have uh, great tension between us, what begins to happen is I have unforgiveness towards Ruiya. She has unforgiveness for me. I have anger towards her. I have rage toward her. And then all of a sudden we are in bondage to something. And the scriptures say, no, I came to reconcile you to God and I came to reconcile you to one another. That we're in the business of liberation ministry, of reconciling ourselves to one another so that we can be free from all of those other things, the unforgiveness that that drags us down and haunts us. The point here is that the gospel is way bigger than a personal transaction. That God went to great lengths to reconcile. And think about that. The passage says to reconcile all things, right? So So the gospel is not just for you, it's for the city of Detroit. It's not just for the city of Detroit, it's for our country, right? It's not just for the country, but the gospel is for the world. One of the things that I've been saying to you a lot is Jesus is the answer to every problem. And the more I sink into that statement, the more I find it's absolutely true. Jesus is the answer to every problem you are facing, both as an individual and the problems that we are facing as a city and as a country and as a world. Jesus is the answer to every problem because he came to reconcile us, to remove the tension between us and God. There's no other way to have freedom than through Jesus. There's no other way to have a ministry of liberation than to do it through Jesus. Uh, one of the authors that I'm reading right now is Leslie Newbegin, and he writes these words. He says, the way we can know if a Christian community actually believes the gospel is true is to observe whether they are actually involved in sharing it with others. That could be a pinch. If we believe the gospel is true, then it only makes sense that we would desire to seek for others to know its truth. 
To join a church is not to join a social club centered around shared religious experiences. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes that's what we're after is just a shared religious experience of Jesus. But to join God's community of witnesses. We're not a social club. We are a united movement of God with the mission of liberation. I hope that when you look at grace that you see that's true. I hope that when you look at us, you see the ministry partners that we have and the connection that we, we've made such an effort to say that it's not about what happens on Sunday, it's about what happens the rest of the time when we leave these walls, when we take the gospel outside with our partners like SOAR and with our partners like, like Covenant, all of that, that you would see that we are committed to taking the gospel out there. We're not a social club just looking for a religious experience. But even as I say all that, I can feel in my spirit we still have a lot that we can do. That we've just begun to scratch the surface of all that God has called us to do as a church. We have the opportunity to do some pretty amazing things. I just wanna, uh, I just wanna share a story. Um, I know that what I'm talking about uh, is not easy. Uh, so I just last week sold my truck on Craigslist, right? And uh, sorry, that's not, the, that's not the point of the story. Uh, just had to put a little context there. So I put it on the Craigslist on Thanksgiving afternoon, Friday morning, somebody wanted to see it. He came over. I brought his wife. He was older than me. I don't want to say he was old because in a few years I'll be the same age and then I won't, that won't be old anymore. Story of my life, right? Everybody who's older is old, right? But anyway, he was older than me uh, and his wife was pretty frail and she had some trouble uh, kind of even walking up to look at the truck and it was just very clear to me that uh, she was struggling and through the course of talking about the truck, uh, I just asked her how she was doing and she just, uh, for some divine reason, said, uh, well, I'm struggling. It's a hard time of year for me. Uh, several years ago, uh, on my daughter's birthday, right before Christmas, we were hit by a drunk driver. She was killed instantly, and I was paralyzed on uh, one side of my body. So this time of year, I really struggle. And I could hear in the back of my head, Jesus is the answer to every problem. And you know what I did? I sold the truck. And I didn't really go where God was calling me to go. Why do I tell you that? Because in that moment, the gospel was way too small for me. In that moment, I really didn't know the heart of the Father. So we slip in and out of this, right? Now I've followed up with him and we have a great text chain going and I'm hoping that God uses me, but the door was wide open and all I was thinking about was selling a stupid truck, right? So I know how easy it is to miss this. And so I just say that with all humility. I say, look, God, God wants us to know his heart. He is desperate for the lost. You get that? He's desperate to find the lost. He's searching for the lost. And then he entrusts that to us, right? So we're in this crazy season of Christmas. And here's what I want you to hear. Look, your friends are going to be upset if you don't invite them. They're going to wonder why you don't like them, right? Invite your friends. Bring them to the Christmas service. Bring them to the Elizabeth. There is no reason there shouldn't be 700 people packing this place out with all of their friends. It's an easy invite. It's an easy way to us. If we understood just how passionate God is for the lost, we would be inviting our friends. We would be telling our friends. We wouldn't be worrying about selling a truck. We'd be talking about Jesus because he really is the answer to every problem you're facing and every problem they're facing. We need to understand the heart of the Father 
And we need to know the gospel is way bigger than a personal transaction. If in your mind you're thinking, hey, the gospel's good for me, but whatever other people choose is okay for them, you're wrong. There's only one way, and that's Jesus. He was very clear, and either that's true or he's a lunatic and we don't need to listen to him. There's only one way, and it's our position. It's, it's what God's entrusted us to have a liberation ministry to take the truth of freedom to the people. Jesus said, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. We pray for you before the service and the group of people that were in the chapel praying uh, really felt strongly. Uh, I don't think they knew what I was gonna preach on, but they felt that uh, some people needed to experience freedom today. Uh, they felt that there were people in the room that just needed to say yes to Jesus for the first time. And so I just wanna encourage you to do that. If part of what I'm talking about makes sense to you and you just wanna say yes to Jesus, it's really pretty simple. I'm the prodigal son. I've lived a reckless life. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've sinned. And you turn your eyes to Jesus and he embraces you and he welcomes you into the kingdom. That's the gospel. We're met with grace when we should be met with punishment. I'm gonna pray for us. And if you uh, desire to be prayed over, prayed for, if you have some uh, physical ailments that you want us to pray over, we would love to do that. If you have some spiritual things going on and you'd like us to pray over, you'd love to do that. Uh, as I pray, prayer team, if you wanna come down, uh, that would be great so that you're here ready to receive people. Lord, I thank you so much uh, for the truth of your word. I thank you for your grace that's new every morning. I thank you that you love me the same even when I screw up and sell a truck instead of talking about you. I thank you that you can redeem all of that. Thank you for the opportunities that you place before us to be a witness for you. Thank you that we are a cloud of witnesses. Help us to live into that truth. Help us to truly have here at Grace and around the world a ministry of liberation. As we set our eyes on the, on the goal of raising all that money, I just pray that you would stir deep things in each one of us to give generously so that we can support our partners that are doing such an amazing work around the world. Lord, for the folks in the room who uh, are feeling stirred to say yes to you, I just pray that they would have the courage to just walk down and, and talk to any one of these people and just allow them to share Christ in a powerful way with them. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a great afternoon. God bless you. Transcend to your